open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to deal with four verses this morning. Romans chapter 6. Love it when we start new chapters. It means that we're continuing to add to our, uh, our truth quotient here as Paul unpacks for us the gospel. But Romans 6, 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the passage up there on the screen. If you don't own one and you're here for the first time, we'd love for you to go over to the Commons Bookstore, which is in the back of our campus, and we'll give you one for free that you can make your own. So Romans chapter 6. About 25, 27 years ago, I was an interim youth pastor in a Bible church. And uh, part of the problem about it being an interim pastor is you don't know the rules of the road. They don't give you, like, etiquette for staff meetings or things like that. I was raw as I could possibly be. And so I, I was sitting in these meetings. We were studying the Bible. We were reading books. We were dialoguing. And I was growing so fast, so much. Um, and yet I didn't have what I would call the, the, the normalized, like, how do you respond in a meeting? So if something struck me funny, I'd just laugh out loud. I just thought, that's we're normal guys. But there was some kind of rule they didn't tell me about um, that was in the meeting. The other thing was that when we would discover or bump into theological truths, I was so fast to run the logical line. Well, if that's true then this must be true, and then this must be true. And I know I was frustrating the senior pastor, like I was going way, way too fast, maybe jumping to conclusions too quickly for him, but that's, that's how it worked for me. Just like, you know, kind of the arguing spirit, maybe the debating spirit. Well, if that's true, this must also be true. And I'm certain I frustrated a bunch of people at the same time. That whole idea of running the logical line, in essence, is what Paul is doing here in the first four verses of chapter 6. If you're one of those who like to read ahead, you you know where we're at. In fact, Paul has um, over and over again in four and a half chapters, he's been laying out for the church the scandalous yet beautiful story that sinners can be saved not from performance or good deeds or religion or self-made righteousness, but by grace alone in Jesus the Savior, Period, that unbelievable, blow your mind, ruin religion story that Jesus saves sinners by grace, he has given us for four and a half chapters. And he's said a couple of very provocative things in these four and a half chapters, and sometimes he's interrupted the story with a question. Well, if that's true, then I know what you're thinking. And he does that here in, in chapter six. He deals with those arguments. So let me just read these four verses, and then we'll uh, see what the Holy Spirit says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's, uh, let's stop and pray. We got to ask for spiritual ears and the Holy Spirit loves to teach. And so let's ask him to do that this morning. God, these are your words. And we confess our limitations. Sometimes our lack of understanding limits us. Sometimes it's our sin that limits us. But God, we're asking you this morning that you would give us ears to hear and that your Holy Spirit would do the preaching. I pray, God, that we would be, uh, maybe if those are people in this room who need the encouragement, God, would you, through your Spirit, encourage us. But maybe there's some here who need the confrontation. So God, would you do that too? We trust you. We really do. 
And after getting done singing all those wonderful songs about how great and awesome you are, the conclusion of this message will equally be true, that you're a wonderful, awesome God who saves sinners like us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The uh, question that comes up in the beginning of chapter 6 is in response to something that he made a case for in chapter 5. I want you to look at verse 20 uh, of your text because he says something extremely radical. And this is what he says. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So get that point where sin increased, grace superabounded. Now, James Boyce suggests if you're paying attention to what he just said at the end of chapter five, you're left with a couple of potential problems. The first problem is this. If grace is really gonna win out for us, Paul, if you've said it's by grace alone, if it's truly gonna superabound over our sin and it never wears out and God never grows tired of, of his people, then isn't that gonna create a whole other class of Christians that are professional sinners? Like really, if it's true that where sin increases, we get more grace, isn't that going to send us all off to our like spiritual schizophrenia and we're going to all just sin all the time because that's the way to get more grace? Good question, right? The, the other question is, what's, what about the law? Because every time Paul talks about it, it almost sounds as if it has no value whatsoever. Now, the problem of those two questions he deals with in two particular chapters. Chapter 7, he's going to deal with the problem of the law. In chapter 6, he's going to deal with the problem of grace. And I say problem of grace because every, ever since Paul, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, penned these words of grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, ever since that's happened, people have attempted to draw the conclusion quickly that somehow sin doesn't matter and obedience is not important. That if obeying the law doesn't save a man, if being religious doesn't change his heart, if going to church doesn't make us good and God doesn't smile on that kind of person, if in fact, if all the law does is just simply reveal us, if that's the only point that it has, and grace is truly the only way to forgiveness and relationship with God, and if grace increases all the more that I sin, well, why bother with obedience? You get the point? Uh, the word, the term used to describe what we're talking about today, not that you want to use it, but it's antinomianism, all right? And I, I thought about doing a sermon with the acrostic. <laughs> We'd be here until next week. So I decided against that idea. That word simply just means against law, against the law specifically, or the idea that there are grace abusers. You've heard this before, right? It used to be a way more popular accusation against the teaching of grace. Like when the church started to bump into that fact that you can't earn it and you can't work it and you're not good enough, someone said, well, wait a minute, if you go too far with that, all these knuckleheads will run around and sin against each other, right? So um, anyway, the accusation of those who do is, is this idea of being an antinomian, but not that we're going to use it ever again. I just want to make sure that if you read it, because I'm going to post something on our city uh, blog site uh, this week, a, a little a sarcastic letter to Mr. Antinomian. It's really uh, uh, provocative, so I'd love you to read it. But anyway, Paul deals with this problem and this person in chapter 6. I want you to look at verse 1. We're going to see the question again, but we're also going to see how Paul responds to the question. Here's what he says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And here's his answer, pretty blunt, pretty to the point, by no means. 
the phrase is as emphatic as it can be. It means let it not be, or it's stupid to consider it, or it's ridiculous to ponder. God forbid it that you would think that somehow sin more, get more grace, okay? Well, that's his response to it. And if you're reading it, to be fair, you might look at Paul's reaction as a little bit severe. Because at first glance, the description of grace you, you might end up thinking, well, that's a logical conclusion. Fair? Because you don't earning grace, because no one can snatch you from the Father's hand, that God's grace does superabound in our inabilities. And there's a logical, at least human perspective, that you look at the story and go, well, I guess I get more of God to cover more of me the more I fail. Right? A little bit of logical argument. Um, Ray Stedman even talked about it as being a natural conclusion. Because we like to sin. Sin is fun. If sin wasn't fun, we wouldn't sin. It glitters. Now, it, it lies. It's not real. It's full, false gold, right? But the only reason we go to it is because we think. We think for a moment it might satisfy or it might please or it might be something else I need other than just Jesus alone. The only reason you do it because you want to. And so Ray Stedman simply suggests that the reason why that would be a natural conclusion is because that's what happens in our hearts. We naturally gravitate towards the pleasure of sin for a moment, right? So, hey, wouldn't that be easy? Sin and get more grace, right? I'd be first in line. But, so, let me just stop here. I don't know if you're into this sermon yet, but let me get your attention, okay? I have preached, this church has preached for years and years and years, the unbelievably true truth of grace alone. In fact, I've made it my mission, at least tried to preach grace to such a degree that you, you're very uncomfortable with it, like it bothers you. Like if we talk about grace and leave it just about how man is saved, like how is this distance and this sin gap between God and sinful man solved, it is grace alone and you don't bring anything but your garbage and your sin. You have no inner ability to fix it. And when natural man spends enough time looking at God's provision alone, sometimes it bumps into our idols, doesn't it? Sometimes it bumps into our religion or our, our goodness or whatever. And to be honest with you, if you preach grace clearly enough, it's offensive. It was offensive to the Pharisees. It was offensive to the religious leaders of the day. And it should bother us. If you, if you come to church long enough or grew up in the system, you could look at it and go, wait a minute. I've done a lot of yeoman work here. I've tried. Now, with that being said, okay, the issue of talking up grace has created somewhat of a, and I think that's sort of true in the last 20 years, has created somewhat of a little bit of an epidemic. Talking up grace and rejecting holiness at the same time. It used to be a different problem. You know, when I grew up and my dad was a pastor, he would make mincemeat out of this pulpit. Boom, boom, boom. He would pound it. He was hellfire. And there was a lot of do's and don'ts in the church. You better do, you better not. And, and this is how you feel better about yourself. And, and just, for, just for fun, the church would throw in a little bit of judgment for kicks and giggles, right? And so you'd walk around feeling like, I never did enough. I don't know if I'm satisfied. So the whole lie about religiosity, that somehow you can feel better about your position with God by performance, was an anti-gospel message, Right? Well, when you go over here to fix the grace problem, the classic human thing to do, like a windsock, is to leave truth to go fix a problem. 
And so instead of talking about obedience and grace, we leave like this idea of obedience and holy living to go get, hey, we're free in Jesus. And now I can be an absolute idiot. It doesn't matter. You get my point? It doesn't matter how, how I live. And so um, we jettison holy living so that we can get God's grace. And I don't think that's what the scripture says. Now, I don't um, necessarily believe all the surveys I read, but they keep repeating it so much, I wonder if there's any truth to it. Those who, who examine us, examine the church, say, you know, the divorce rates with people who say Jesus is their Lord is almost as high as the world around them that says he's not. The, the internet pornography issue in the church is just as big, as they say, as those who say there is no God. And the issue of substance abuse and, and how we perpetrate pain on each other to some, they say, at least those who survey, that the problem in the church is as great as the world. Um, there is just as much materialism in the church as there is in the world. I don't know if that's true. But having done ministry long enough and talked to enough people, I know it's too true. Some of you in here, if you were just be, just be honest, if you're honest about your own life, not that you ever could. I mean, we'd be kind of ruined if we did. But if you were able to be transparent about your struggles, did I describe some of them? Have, have you taken God's grace to say, well, then I don't have to address that. Or I guess that's just the way it is. I mean, I'm going to be that kind of struggler the rest of my life. No, no harm, no foul. Because, listen, there's heaven-sized grace for my problems, and it superabounds over my life. And I can live here in this problem, in this pit, and not have to address it. I'm not saying you would ever verbalize that. You ever thought it? Well, four and a half chapters, Paul has pounded us and pounded the issue of self-made righteousness. He's gone after trying to be good enough and religious enough. He's gone after legalism by showing us that we're so broken, there is no possible way you could fix your own problem. Hence Jesus. And he can superabound over what you can't fix. He can, he can do that. But in this passage... Paul confronts this other half of the gospel that I don't think we're as comfortable with. Not just how a man is saved, which we've dealt with, but what a man is saved to, right? What does God, after he saves me, what does he do with me? How, what is that man saved to? And here's the truth. If you'd like to write it down, if you want to leave with one punchline, okay, this is the punchline. God never ever saves a man he doesn't also transform. Never. That is a spiritual impossibility. If you say, no, man, I'm a follower of the king. I love Jesus. And you have no transform transformative look in your life whatsoever in any category. No repentance, no conviction of sin. Well, it isn't true. You've just described the, the person that doesn't exist, kind of like that rabbit with antlers. They're not there. Okay. So the question that Paul asks is uh, an absurd one, to be honest, because it overlooks God's purpose in salvation. We've gone through many of these purposes. One of the purposes is that God deals with the penalty. He saves us from the penalty of our sin. And the penalty of sin is death, right? 
If you sin, you will die. And so death was my future, except Jesus came, took on flesh, and died in my place. He carried, bore every single drop of a holy God's wrath against my sin. There's no more penalty. God's not going to need to judge anything else because he perfectly judged Jesus, saved from the penalty. We've also been saved from the guilt of our sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God isn't going to say, hey, I, I know you're here and all, but you were kind of an idiot, and I remember this and this and this about you, and you were like always doing that. That stuff is gone. The charges against you have been nailed to the cross, and they've been washed in his blood, and he's not bringing them up ever again. You, you go ahead and smile when any of this stuff hits you in the heart, okay? Um, we're also saved, biblically tells us that we're saved from the presence of sin. Now, what that's referring to is that someday, someday, when we see him, we'll be like him. And all that fleshly, you know, response to the world and its systems, that's going to be gone. The whole thing is going to be broken. I'll be glorified, all new, no interest in sin anymore. My entire focus will be clear. So there's a future tense to what we're being saved from. But what Paul is dealing with right here, he's introducing us to this idea that God saves us from the practice of sin now. Right? He saves us from the practice of sin. I, I hope you have a bunch of questions already formulating in your head because you should. Anyway, the question that Paul quotes to us here is absurd because not only does it um, disregard God's purpose in salvation, but it also uh, disregards our union with Jesus. Now, let me just throw out a couple of phrases. You'll be able to finish this, okay? He is the vine. We are the, yeah, connected. He is the head. We are the body, right? There is an absolute above and beyond metaphorical truth about our connection to Jesus. Our union with Jesus is real, right? To go on sinning is spiritual insanity. In fact, one writer said this, that it's impossible that from Jesus, the source of holy living will also be the source of sin. If he becomes mine, if he, I am hidden in Christ, that Jesus could be the source of bad and good, you tell me. Not possible. The question that Paul asks is absurd because it disregards the clear teaching of the Bible. Because the Bible has some things to say about how Christians now go live, okay? We're not defeated by sin, it says, and we don't live in our sin. I want you to turn to a passage uh, to the right, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 6 and read to verse 11. When, when we read this, some of you are going to have a cold chill go down your spine, Trust me, that's normal. 1 John chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, we'll put it up here. But this is what John says. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident that who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The... the um, 
reality of what John has just said should, at least at first glance, make you wonder. I used to read this and promise myself I'd never read it again because it scared me. You know what I'm saying? The person who keeps on sinning can't declare a relationship with him. I'm going to confess something to you. I keep sinning. I'm going to confess something else. I'm prophetic, and I know you do too. (laughs) Everybody I know keeps on sinning. So what is he saying here? I think the key to it is if you back up to, to verse, uh, or chapter 2, verse 1, um, you can't conclude, even though it looks like it, you can't conclude that Christians no longer sin. That's not a possibility, and it's clearly not a possibility if we just simply use John's own words in verse 1 of chapter 2 of 1 John. He says, my little children, referring to people like him, believers in Jesus, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, I want you to get the tense of what he said here. He's not suggesting that someone out there can't sin. The phrase is better rendered, when you sin, you have an advocate before the Father. It's like it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Anybody, you know, like, amen that one? It's going to happen. You're going to sin. So even even other places in the scriptures, we're we're clear about it. We're going to get to Romans 7 here in a couple weeks. What does Paul say? I do not understand me. The very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. The very thing I want to do, I can't do. Who's going to rescue me from this body of sin and death? How is this going to get fixed? How, what's going to happen to my flesh? And he obviously gives credit to Jesus who will transform him. In James, James is dealing with trials and temptations. And there's this, there's this moment for every believer when you feel like or have had moments like where, where you look at the struggle, like the temptations or the battle that you're in. And you look like it's, like it's obviously within God's control and that eventually you're going to tip over somewhere in this story. And you're going to have a tendency to look back at God and go, God, you could have you done something with this. This was bigger than I could bear. Fair? And James simply says, no, 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 you can't blame God. Because each one of you is dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. You sin because you want to. That's the only reason. Over and over again, I could bury you with scripture that talks about the, na- the nature of the human heart, even post-conversion, that has a tendency to wander and do stupid things. So clearly the scripture isn't talking about um, the fact that we're not going to sin anymore. Here's what he's saying. James, or John here makes it really clear that when you become a Christian and you sin, you can't stay there. You can't build a house there and put up curtains and call it good. You can't say this is my home and I love it and I know God has said something against it, but this is really, really good and I like it. You can't twist it to make a bad thing good. You can't. That's what John is saying here. You can't have a habitual, ongoing, I don't fight against it, I don't struggle uh, against it, uh, that's a spiritual impossibility. So if we back up to the very beginning of Romans, not that you have to turn there, but Paul dealt with this idea of people who now exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they call good bad and bad good. And if you're in one of those conditions in your life and your behavior where you've called sin that God has clearly laid out for you as something good and you need it and you don't want to leave it, then the conclusion is very simple. You are never his. The reality of what John is saying, listen very carefully, Christians repent a lot. 
a lot. And if you don't have repentance in your life, if you're, if you're just one of those places where you've gone to some kind of lifestyle or some definition of life or some kind of I got to have it and you just kind of put a fence around it and say, well, this is good. This bad thing is now good. Well, then you've exchanged the truth for a lie and, and that just exposes the fact that there was no spirit of God in you. You haven't been transformed. Christian sin, yes? Christian sin in habitual ways, yes? There isn't a sin in the world that Christians don't commit, Yes? See David, murder, adultery, just a couple, just to mention. (laughs) But they don't stay there. At some point in time, hours later, days later, months later, years later, God wins. God wins. And so those people who try to make a case for the professional sinner who's covered by God's grace doesn't exist. Okay, there's no possibility for that. Christians can't be professional sinners is because God made us into professional repenters. The Holy Spirit of God has sharp elbows and all he does is say, you did it again. You're not happy in it. It's wearing you out. You're miserable. Come back to me, right? It's good news. It's good news to know this. The next three verses of this passage in Romans, Paul tells us the why and the how this is possible. And why we can't go on sinning, he says in in verse 3, or let's back it up to verse 2. He says, by no means can you keep on sinning. How can we who died to sin still live, live in it? There is a why here that you need to see. That phrase, died to sin, is the explanation for why it's impossible. And by the way, it's the key to understanding how God transforms us. The promise of God, not just to save us, to make us into the image of Jesus. This word we call sanctification, being sanctified, becoming more like Christ over time. This word, this phrase is the key to understanding how that's, how that's possible. The, the word died is not what some say that um, it's that you're looking forward to someday being dead, that someday, someday all these urges will go away. That's the dead future thing that some people have said about this passage. Some have said, well, it's kind of both and. It's like we're dead and dying. Like we're not fully dead, but we're sort of dead, and so we're on our way to dead, and that's the explanation of this passage, and they try to say that because they struggle with sin. It's not that we are in the process of dying. The verb tense that Paul deliberately uses here is this. This dead is a finished past action already accomplished. That's the word the Holy Spirit of God told Paul to write down. Tell them it's over. Tell them it's finished. Tell them they're already dead because they are. So Paul's answer to why you can't sin anymore is because you've died to it. What does that mean? Because sometimes I don't feel that dead to it. Just being honest. Verse 10 gives us a little bit of a clue. There are multiple times in this passage, and I think verses 1 through verse 11, this phrase, dead to sin, comes up. Two times it's used to describe us as, as what we have in Christ, that we're now dead to sin, but it's used once in verse 10 of Jesus. Now, we know Jesus died for sin, but it's not the phrase that Paul uses. He uses the same phrase to describe Jesus, that he died to sin. Look at verse 10. For the death he died... He died to sin. Same phrase. So I figure if we're going to understand what it is for us to die to sin, then maybe we could learn from Jesus and understand how he died to sin, and maybe that's true for us as well. Look at the rest of verse 10. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Here's how simple this is. It simply means that Jesus' relationship to sin is over. When he came, there was this connection to sin. He had to uh, come to die for it, didn't he? He had to suffer the weight of it, didn't he? He came to defeat sin, didn't he? And then when he went to the cross and he died and said it was finished, that connection, that relationship to sin would never be repeated again. Jesus didn't have to come. He didn't have to bear sin. He didn't have to die for sin. It was over. It was a finished act, correct? This, this whole experience was over this moment or season in his life, never to be repeated again. And that's what verse 9 says. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never, what? Never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So now, if that's true, apply this truth to you in this passage. It simply means that our union with Jesus, that our old life of sin is over too. And let me describe what I mean by the old life of sin. The have to sin. The gonna sin, the slavery to sin, the chain to sin aspect of every person's life before Christ. Before Jesus, my best acts, according to Isaiah 66, were like filthy rags. I couldn't get anywhere. You wake up, you know how you're gonna go. You're gonna go to idol worship and yourself and selfish pig, and you're gonna do whatever you want to make yourself happy, all of which is an anti-God perspective. I had no other options until God dawns in my head in the person of Jesus Christ, and suddenly there's now a compass, and there's worship. Now, does that mean I won't sin? No, but it means I can't go long-term. But Jesus cut the cord to chain to sin. Do you understand? He made it possible not to sin anymore. It's not that dead here means that you don't or can't respond to sin, because you do. It's not that it's your responsibility to make yourself dead to sin, because you can't. And it's not that you die a little each day, because you don't. Paul says you're already dead to sin. So, so let me just paraphrase this so you understand what he said here. You can't continue in sin because people who are already dead to it can't pull it off. God ain't going to have it. Now, let me show you how it's possible. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You know, some have taken this passage to, to mean that, that Paul has now brought in the subject of baptism because he's talking about something necessary for salvation. Like, that's part of it. You know, people have actually used this passage to talk about baptismal regeneration, which simply means the way you get saved is you also have to be baptized. Okay, there, there are churches who, who believe that. We don't believe that. We believe people are saved by grace alone, by faith in Jesus alone. Nothing else added. But he brings up the illustration of baptize, baptism to describe a relationship and a union that I think is a little bit foreign in our culture. So let me try to describe it. Uh, we are planning in our church in December, the beginning of December, when we're in that new building, to do baptisms in our services. And here's how it's going to go, because I've done enough of them, Right? People are going to come and big smiles and families are going to show up, big smiles. And, and there's going to be clapping after every baptism, big celebration, which is a wonderful thing. 
But it's kind of in the middle of a club that all supports the person, right? Attic boy, way to go. In, in the day that, that Paul is writing, baptism was a huge cost. I mean, you would go down to the river and be baptized in public against, in front of all these people who hated your Jesus, hated your God, thought you were nuts, thought you were blaspheming God. These are decisions that people made to say, I'm willing to live without my family, and I'm willing to, to bear the weight of how you feel about my Jesus. I'm willing to lose my job. I'm willing to suffer loss for the sake of Christ. It's like the, the narrow way that the Gospels describe. I get to Jesus leaving everything behind, having nothing, right? Nothing. The cost for saying I love Christ was huge. Baptism wasn't everybody celebrated. Isn't that cool and cute? It was a cost of identity. I, I don't know when you came to Christ, and I don't know what people told you about it, what, what it was to come to Jesus, but it's really hard in the American culture not to say, like, it's pretty accepted. In fact, you're going to have all these friends, and we got a coffee shop, by the way. You get great coffee. All you got to do is come to church, Right? They got great seats and air conditioning, killer music. I mean, who wouldn't want this? No cost whatsoever. Well, that isn't what baptism is. Baptism is denial of self. Baptism is an identify with Christ alone and suffering loss for the gospel. Now apply this illustration to what he's saying. The how this whole dying to sin is possible. That when God deals with our hearts and he deals with our minds about our sin, I compare the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of heaven and glory to the loss of all the perpetrated pain in my own life and it loses, it just loses. And I suffer loss to get Christ in heaven, amen? I leave it all behind to get that. And my union with Jesus is how it's possible to walk a sanctified life. Because he's more beautiful than my anger. He's more beautiful than my sin and my lust. He's more beautiful than my stuff and my money. He's more beautiful than winning the argument. He's more beautiful than everything. Doesn't matter what they do to me. They can persecute me, kill my family, throw me out. I don't care. Jesus is the prize. Amen? He's the prize. And so here's this passage where Paul brings up baptism just to, just to illustrate that our identity has been changed and our union is total and complete. If you've come to Christ and you've got a wagon full of things that Jesus can't touch, you better examine your salvation. Because that isn't a depicted picture of the gospel in the New Testament. The gospel has always been Jesus plus nothing. There's an interesting phrase as we finish here where... Uh, Paul brings up this idea of buried into death, like, okay, we're dead already. I mean, it seems like he's, you know, exaggerating here, but Boyce explains it this way. I think it brings some weight to what he's saying here, but it says that, he says this, the reason burial is an important step even beyond death is that burial puts the deceased person out of the world permanently. You want to talk about cost analysis? You want to talk about getting away from all the stuff plus Jesus that has a tendency to show up? Well, this idea of being dead and away from it is a depiction of how we're sanctified. A corpse is, a de is dead to life, but there is a sense in which it can still be said to be in life as long as it's still around. When it's buried, when it's placed in the ground and covered with earth, it's removed from the sphere of this life permanently. It is gone. That's why Paul, who wanted to emphasize the finality of our being removed from the rule of sin and death to the rule of Christ, emphasizes it. He is repeating, but also intensifying what he's already said about our death to sin. You have not only died to it, he says, but you've been buried to it. 
Don't go back to sin once you've joined to Christ because it's like digging up a dead body. <laughs> Make sense? End of verse 4, it tells us how this finishes. Again, we are, it's impossible, it's an absurd, it's a crazy statement to think that you sin more to get grace because you've, been, you've died to it because of your identity with Jesus. But here's what the outcome is. That Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. The conclusion, the so what to this identity is holiness, transformation, sanctification, obedience, all those words that nobody really likes to hang out with, but they're words about what God intends to do with his kids, not just save us from hell, but save us from sin now and to transform us into a bride, a beautiful bride. He says, that one's pure and that one's holy and that one believes and that one loves and that one trusts over time. God does that in us. So, just to make it very certain, new life is directly connected to how we are identified with Jesus and our separation from the rule of sin. So, Jesus is our life, and the chains of sin have been cut. We can now obey where we couldn't before. Does that make sense? I want to finish with just a couple of thoughts, because if you're thinking, if you're paying attention, if you're not snoozing on me, then you've already wrestled with a couple of questions. What if I do go back to my sin? Because I do. And every person I've ever met, every Christian, every leader I've ever met has a tendency to go back to some sin. What do you do? Well, let me just tell you where this is going. It won't satisfy. In other words, it won't last long, right? Whenever you drink out of a dirty river that you think is pure water, you will find out in time that it's dirty, it will not satisfy. Um, it's kind of like the possibility of saying, okay, I know I've grown up, I'm an adult, I want to behave like I'm nine years old. Could you? Certainly you could. But over a period of time, you're going to stick out and feel really stupid. You're going to hate it. I don't like acting like a child right now. People are making fun of me. I'm, I'm, I'm not satisfied. You're going to hate it, I promise. So will sin satisfy? No. If you're repeating sin, you're going to find out the hard way that it has nothing to offer. Some of you are just going to shake your head because like, I know, I've been so stubborn, I bump my head on that one all the time and it never delivers. Well, that's the promise of the scriptures, okay? Here's the second thing. If you uh, keep going back to your sin, God will stop you. Uh, the scriptures say that we have a father in heaven and he loves his kids and he disciplines those he loves. And sometimes God's discipline is to let you have what you want so that you can bear the weight of your decisions. And sometimes the weight of our decisions equal things like sadness and anger and loneliness and sleepless nights and bitterness and resentment. It wears you out. It's like David said, when I kept silent about my sin, it's like my bones were rotting in my flesh. You ever been there? I have. I want nothing to do with rotting bones, okay? Nothing to do whatsoever with it. And so sometimes we choose evil and we choose sin in spite of what we know to be true because we think we need it to be happy. We've made it a Jesus plus issue and God says you want it, you got it, and when you get it, it wears you out and you hate it. Only a matter of time and you go, ah, I'm done. I don't want dirty water anymore. I want living water. Then there's this uh, other aspect of what God will do to stop it. Sometimes he takes his people home. Sometimes he takes you out. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is dealing with the church and communion of all things, just how they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And they were making a party out of it. They were getting drunk and eating and gluttony and everything else. And, and Paul says, listen, you guys are doing it in an unworthy manner. Do you understand that's why some of you are sick and some of you no longer live? God won't put up with a bunch of mocking lives. So if your life is miserable, if you're, if you're just kind of worn out, just know this, that God will stop it. And then there's this last one, and I, I, would be wrong, I would be dead wrong if I didn't tell you this. If you continue to sin and there has been no conviction, there's a possibility that you were never saved. You know Jesus, you know about Jesus, you know the story, you know the historical figure, but you've never come empty-handed with your life and said, it's all yours, I want you and none of me. Maybe you're not a Christian. You can be really nice, you know, and not be a Christian. You can be moral and pay your taxes and have people like you and not be a Christian. But if you come to Christ with anything else attached to Jesus, you lose it all. That's the wrestling match we got. That's why Paul gave us this passage. Don't make the mistake of thinking that grace should be uh, abused or used to find your other idols, right? God won't have it that way. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this truth and how it also um, deals with us. Some in this room um, see hope in it, that you have made a promise to transform your people and, and uh, to shape us into the image of Jesus. And to some, they heard this message and they've got all sorts of questions because they're scared it, that they're not a believer. God, there's nothing wrong with that fear if it leads us to repentance. So my prayer is that it does, that you would get the glory and we'd make much of you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody. We'll see you next Sunday.